This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I think the best con artists are ourselves at the end of the day. We are so good at just crafting reality to be the way that we think it should be. So imagine telling your parents, hey, listen, I know what it is that I want to do for a living. I want to write. I feel it in my bones. This is what I want to do. And then literally saying to them, but, you know, most people can't make a living doing that. And I'm really concerned. And maybe I should just go and do something else. And then your parents turning around after you literally just graduated near the top of your class in Harvard and have amazing opportunities to do almost anything and saying, no, you're smart. Figure it out. Write. That is an incredible conversation, and it's one that we rarely ever hear about. In fact, most of the time we hear the exact opposite conversation, but that's the conversation today's guest, author, journalist, essayist Maria Konnikova had with her parents that led to an astonishing career as a writer, a columnist, and now on her second book, The Confidence Game, which we're going to dive into, which also explores the psychology of the long con of con men and it's somewhat horrifying. And um, part of what's so horrifying is about that a lot of the same things that the greatest grifters who've ever lived have leveraged are the exact same things that so many people leverage to build companies, to market, and to also do extraordinary good in the world. And we talk about that really gray area. Really excited to share this conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. I'm really excited to explore, I mean, two things. One is the book that you just wrote. It blew my mind on multiple levels and horrified me on multiple (laughs) levels, too. I'll tell you a couple of those levels, too. But also just kind of explore your story, um, your journey. I think it's really fascinating. Um, You immigrated here from Russia. Uh, I think it was Moscow, right? Yeah, yeah. And was this a part of, uh, I know, especially in the Northeast, um, a lot of people came as one of the gates were lifted and a lot of Jews were actually um, allowed. Yeah, it absolutely was. So this was still the Soviet Union. So the only people that were really allowed out of the country were Jews because Israel said that, you know, right of return, Jews can come back. And so what a lot of people, including my family, would do is say that they were going to go to Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened is your passport was ripped up at the border. So you became kind of a refugee. You had to leave no right of return, basically. And the idea was that you would then go to Israel. But what a lot of people did was there was this whole kind of organization that was devoted to getting Jews to the United States um, as well. And so we went to Austria, to Vienna, and then we went to Rome, and we spent... I don't want to lie, but I think something like between six months and a year um, in Rome. And then we applied for political asylum to the U.S. and were granted it and came to the Boston suburbs, as many, many Jews did at the time. Very typical. You were really young when this happened. I was four. Do you have any memories of um, going through this? 
I do. And it's it's fascinating because when I started studying psychology, I was fascinated by memory. And I I think I understand why my why some of my recollections from that time are so vivid. Hmm. It's because it was kind it was quite traumatic. Yeah. And a lot happened. And so I think I have more memories from age four, age three, age four than I would have under normal circumstances because they're just very clearly demarcated points in time where where you can kind of say, okay, I know this memory is from before when I was four because it's from our Moscow apartment. Wow. Things like that. That's incredible. Um, it's funny, I had a um, <laughs> first couple of years in my life. Actually, on the Air Force side of Manhattan, um, my dad was in grad school in Columbia. Uh-huh. And uh, similar to you. Um, Who was his advisor? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. He actually just retired um, two years ago. He had one job his whole life and ran a lab and researched human cognition. And um, he's that guy, you know, who just decided upon what he wanted to do and, and did it, you know, one the entire time. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> what I was going to say is it's so interesting because for years I had this memory of guys running around in a dark hall and then somebody knocking on my neighbor's door and asking for a gun and my neighbor handing him a gun and... I kind of forgot about it. And years later, there was a TV show. Um, it was one of the original cop shows in New York. And I was sitting and watching it. And I see this scene. And I was like, oh, my God. This is actually the scene that was filmed. The first time it clicked that um, they were actually filming when I was a kid, when I was like three years old. Um, and it was the scene. And there it was, you know, just on TV. And it's kind of mind-blowing. But it shows you, even at a young age, I guess, there's this heightened state of emotion yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the immigration experience for a little kid, you don't know anything. Um, I didn't speak the language. Um, I remember my first day of kindergarten so well. I cried for most of the day because I was in the wrong classroom and I couldn't speak English. And the way I knew I was in the wrong classroom is there was my name tag wasn't there. The only thing I knew was how to write my name in English. So they ended up having to call my sister, who's six years older, um, to come and kind of calm me down and and help me out a little bit. But I just I was mortified that I couldn't speak. I can't even imagine that. Um, so you landed in Boston. I guess that's where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, in the suburbs, about um, forty minutes outside right. of Boston. And then at some point, it seems like you latched onto uh, the creative side, the writing side, pretty young at, from. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, I. It, it's funny. We actually recently had a conversation um, at a family at a family dinner, and I asked my parents because a lot of the kids in my family kind of had passions early on. So one of my sisters loved animals and wanted to be a veterinarian, and now she's a veterinarian. Um, another one of uh, my siblings, my uh, my brother, loved to take things apart um, and really was fascinated by computers, and he's a computer programmer. Um, my sister was always, my oldest sister was always kind of the really, really nurturing one, and now she's a neonatologist. Um, and I said, you know, I wonder when I was really, really young, did I always, you know, what did I want to do? And in unison, my parents said, be a writer. <laughs> so apparently when I was five years old, I announced my intention. I mean, especially when you think about the fact that if you ask any random person on the street right now, you're like, you know, even now, today, do you know what you want to do? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people are going to answer no. Yeah. And so to have four kids in one household dial it in at you know such a young age is kind of extraordinary i think it's a testament to my parents tell me more um, about that to the fact that you know my mom is a remarkably strong woman she's you know i think my role model in a lot of ways and she said you know we did not come to this country so that you became a doctor or a lawyer or you know one of the things that all jewish parents want <laughs> your kids to be my sister ended up becoming a doctor so they've got that covered um but we came here so that you could do whatever you want to do and so that you can just kind of explore and have all the options open to you because as jews in the soviet union there were no options open to them they couldn't do anything um they had no choices you know they could do they could follow a very specific path and even then there were quotas for Jews, so they weren't sure if you could, you know, make it to university, if you could make it into the program you wanted. And so I think that that's, that was really, really important because I never felt like I had to do any, anything. It was very intrinsically motivated. 
Um, we were never rewarded for doing well. We were never punished for not doing well. We were always just encouraged. And I think all of us became very self-driven. What's so interesting to me about that also is that so often when you talk about the immigrant mindset and you look at a lot of cultures that come here, you hear about stories where the parents are saying, like, we sacrificed everything to come here. Mm -hmm. You are going to be a professional, yeah. a doctor, a lawyer, because that's what you do. You're going to you know, like study fiercely, and there are three paths that are allowed. Mm -hmm. And that's part of this, you know, the mindset that comes with a lot of people. So it's kind of remarkable that your parents almost did the exact opposite. They did, and I'm so incredibly grateful to them. They said, we came here so that you could be happy. I mean, that's the most important thing. Whenever our family gets together, um, and now I'm the only one who's not in the Boston area, mm. um, but whenever we all get together, our first toast is always, in, it's in Russian, but may everyone be healthy. Mm. That's always the first toast. And as the saying goes, you know, if you have your health, everything else is okay. Yeah. And so those were always the priorities. Be healthy, be happy. Yeah. Um, and and if you have those two things, then you can do whatever you want. And I really, that sounds so cliche, you know, the American dream. You can be whoever you want. But it was never like a soft and cuddly type of thing. It was always more of a kind of you have the opportunity to do anything. So take that opportunity. Yeah. Don't lie on the couch. You know, my mom could be a huge taskmaster. You know, my sister did not study a lot when she was, it, it took her a while to discover her passion <laughs> for uh, medicine. Right, right. Um, and she would yell at her, you know, she would, she would make sure that she, she did her work. So it wasn't quite laissez-faire, but it was more, you know, you can, it's really important to find something that you love and to find something that makes you happy in life. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such a beautiful gift to come up and in a family culture that not only allows it, but exalts it. Absolutely. Um, and it's, so, I mean, it's just so, I think it's so rare these days. I think we're so driven by fear and the need for certainty and security. And you know, as a parent, I've, I know, you know like, I, the first thing I want for my daughter is safety. Absolutely. The second thing I want after that, you know, is health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Like I want her to be happy and sure. fulfilled. But first, and I think... Of course, safety comes first, yes. Yeah, but, but we sometimes, you know, like that becomes an overbearing burden that basically says, but if you do something that may light you up, but there's risk associated mm -hmm. with it, you know, you're kind of like, well, that takes me out of the safe zone, even though it may be the keys to an extraordinary life, you know, a much more engaged presence. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, I was always the one who was more risk averse. Oh, no now, when, I, when I told my mom, I want to be a writer, she said, that's amazing, go for it. I said, but I don't know if I can make a living. She said, that's okay. If this is what you want to do, you'll figure it out. I you can make a living. I believe in you. And I said, oh, but everyone's becoming a consultant or an investment banker or going to law school or doing all these things. This was already in college. Um, and how in the world am I going to be a writer? That's so amorphous. There's no real career path. Right. Um, there's no safety net. Um, there is very little to fall back on. It's not like you can grow up in an organization. Right, yeah. And she was the one who said, so, you know, is this what you actually want to do? And I was the one who actually applied for positions to consulting firms and investment banks. Luckily, I did not go in that direction, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I applied. <laughs> so was, was this, when was this? Was this pre-college? Was this, at, this right was after in college? college? This in was college. Uh, senior year when a lot of people get caught up in the frenzy. Yeah, yeah. Of what am I going to do after college? Well, especially where you went. I mean, yeah. you graduated Harvard. Yeah. Right. You you studied psychology undergrad, right? Yeah, and creative writing, fiction. Right. Yeah. Okay. So wait a minute. <laughs> but I always i had i had the i had the fallback that well I have international relations and yeah. I have psychology, so I can become a consultant. Or I had no math background. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. Right. But <laughs> be perfectly honest, but I convinced myself that this might be a good idea. You know what I even did? I took a pre-law, um, an LSAT oh, prep class. Really? My mom looked at me and she said, do you have any intention of being a lawyer? And I said, absolutely not. It sounds absolutely terrible. But law school seems kind of interesting. She said, but do you know, you know, debts, lots of stuff. Are you sure you want this? And I said, well, it's something. Mm. A lot of humanities people end up going to law school. 
um, maybe I should take a prep course. And she said, I'm not paying for a prep course. So, and we had no money um, growing up at all. And so I worked to get $2,000 to take this class. Mm. Um, I never took the LSATs, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I needed to feel like I had safety options. Interesting. <laughs> Which is also there, like, I mean, you're like telegraphing here to a certain extent, you know, like the future journalist in you, which is just like a voracious need to go down every avenue and research fiercely because that's what your writing has evolved into. It's just this immense, immense, like there's no stone that's unturned. Well, that's, I never actually thought of that connection, but yeah, I think you're right. And and by the way, you're talking to somebody who went to law school. Ah, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. But I had the same, really similar thing. And a lot of people who know me cannot fathom why I did, but um, I, I was in political science undergrad, which means who knows what I actually did undergrad. But I went to law school largely because I thought it would be really – I never really intended to practice. I thought it would be really interesting. It would teach me analytical mm-hmm. skills, how mm-hmm. to reason, how to research, how to argue, how to write, some of which it did. <laughs> um, and uh, I was very fortunate. I did well, so I had opportunities. So I practiced for a number of years afterwards. But, um, yeah, as soon as I realized it wasn't right, it was kind of like moving along. So you saved yourself <laughs> a lot of years. What was your first gig out of, out of Harvard then? <laughs> So I went through my first year out of Harvard. I went through, I don't know how many jobs, I think six jobs in very quick succession. My first kind of real job um, was at an ad agency at Young and Rubicum. Mm. Um, I was a copywriter. And I lasted for, I don't know how long, about eight months maybe. And then I didn't want to give up because I felt like, you know, I hadn't really given it a shot. Yeah. And so I went to Saatchi and Saatchi because I decided maybe I just don't like Young and Rubicum. And then I realized, no, actually, I hate copywriting. Uh-huh. <laughs> so then I quit and I um, I was a cliche for a while. I worked as a bartender and tried to write. But that doesn't work because I was always exhausted because last call in New York is at four in the morning. Right. It's not and like so- <laughs> Boston where like, everything shuts down at midnight Exactly. Like so that, by yeah. the time I woke up, it would be time to start getting ready to go open the bar with the other bartenders. Right. And so that, that did not last long because I was always too tired to write. But it was interesting material. And then I went to work at Thrillist, which oh, no is kidding. still around. Yeah. I was their first female employee. And I think after that, they didn't hire women for a while because I quit shortly after <laughs> starting. <laughs> and then the, the job that, re- that stuck, um, I became a producer for Charlie Rose. Right. Um, and I stayed there for a number of years. What was it about that that, that stuck for you? I think a lot of what I love about journalism, actually, there's always stuff to research, and you're always telling stories and finding the most interesting stories to tell mm. and the most interesting ways of telling them. Now, I miss doing my own writing, which is ultimately why I left, but you learn to really to storytell in a very different way because you're, you're writing for the ear, first of all, yeah. um, rather than for the page. And you also are thinking in terms of visual elements, you know, oh, video would go really nicely here. Right. And you're thinking in terms of, so I, I produced the Charlie Rose Science Series, which was all a series of panels. And those were really hard to do because you have four people in addition to Charlie. And you need to start thinking about things like not just expertise, but how does it all go together? Mm. You know, how do their voices um, go together? How do their personalities go together? Are they telegenic? Um, and every single day, you're producing new segments. You're learning new things. I did things in theater. You know, I produced this big show on Harold Pinter and one on David Mamet. I did science mm. stuff. Uh, I got to you know meet some of some incredible people. How much of of what happens in that set? I've always been curious about this. How much of that is actually scripted? Well, what happens is the answer is none in the sense that... um, It's not a verbatim. Right. Charlie does not actually read from a script. It's all his own own questions in the moment. But you do, you produce a packet ahead of time where you include something that is called the arc of the story. So you Mm. say, you know, this is kind of the arc of the interview. This is who this person is. These are the types of things that I think you should ask. Here's how I think it would be interesting to make this go. Here are some questions. And on some topics like politics, he doesn't need that because he's so incredibly well-versed in it that he just 
goes goes off cuff completely. On other things, like some of the science things, I actually had a lot of input on the way the show would go mm-hmm. because it was something where I could lend um, some degree of expertise. And by the way, I had no background in science. I did psychology, which is it is a science, but it's kind of a social. It's right. it's it's a little bit different. I was not a hard science person, so I got to learn a lot. Yeah, which is which is interesting also because some people might look at that position and you know when sort of like moving into it and say, well, I'm not the science person. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take. It. I'm not the person. But your mindset seems to be, and it seems to be sort of like a universally applied mindset. Yeah. Rather than I don't know, I'm not qualified. It's like you know what, I'm pretty smart. I know how to work really hard. Well, let me take a risk. I'll figure it out. That's always been my approach. And that's one of the reasons I actually didn't go into academia uh-huh. when I when I went to get uh, uh, my graduate degree in psychology, because I didn't want to specialize, mm. because I love having the flexibility to explore different things to fall into rabbit holes right. and, and learn about different areas that I had no idea existed. And I love being a novice. There's something really wonderful about just drinking in knowledge in an area where you just knew nothing, and then all of a sudden you find all of these just remarkable things. It, I, I so agree, but we are so terrified as a culture of saying the words, I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's like... Absolutely. And those are the, s- some of the most valuable words in the English language. Yeah. The moment you admit you don't know, so much opens up. It's fascinating. I used to, when I was just starting out um, as a journalist, I made a lot of rookie errors. One of them was trying to cover up when I didn't know something yeah. <laughs> because you don't want to appear like you didn't do your homework. And I learned that that's really not the right way to do it because everyone's happy to explain if you... Don't pretend right. like you like you know something that you don't know. And I also I learned very early on, and I think working for Charlie Rose helped me learn this. But it's also something that's developed over the years that I'm always kind of the least interesting person in the room, and mm. that everyone else is much more fascinating. And so I love just listening and asking questions and letting other people talk because but, you learn so much, you absorb so much. And it, I I totally get like the hat that you wear when you like position yourself that way, but I have to tell you that's not entirely true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's about you know, what you've written, what you've researched, your life. Just having this conversation, you're a fascinating human being. But I, I I get what you're saying, which is if you wear the hat of being the least interesting person in the room, it allows you to let go of having to know everything and just, you know, like, like you said, take, be the novice. And you get such fascinating stories. I mean, recently I had a driver to the airport who, you know, I, I got to talking with him and it ends up that he'd escaped from prison in, the, um, in Tibet. He'd, oh my God. Yeah, and had crossed the border into India, and India had arrested him because they thought he was a spy for wow. China, um, and he had to convince. So he had this just crazy story, and it was the most fascinating ride to JFK that I've <laughs> that I've had in a That's very long amazing. time. And those things happen all the time if you just ask ask people to tell you about them. So is that sort of like your general? Are you? Somebody kind of walks through life generally curious about everything and everyone. I, th- I try to be. I try to be. So, not always in the sense that, like all people, I get tired. And sometimes yeah. I'm just, I don't have the energy to be curious. But then I always regret it. And so if I can muster enough energy to do it, then I always love to just always, always have that antenna moving around mm. and seeing what there is to see because the way I look at it is you know, there's once again this sounds terribly cliche but there's only one life right you only have kind of one one go at learning all of this stuff and if you waste it not being curious then there's just so much missed opportunity yeah so agree so Charlie Rose for a couple of years and it is, then you get the Jones to do more formal education. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's beyond that? You know, I, I felt like, I felt like there was no environment quite as intellectually stimulating as being in school. Mm-hmm. And I never, I, I, let, to be perfectly honest, I never wanted to be in academia. So I did go for a PhD kind of the same way I was looking at law school. Right. I want to learn more about this. I want that sort of stimulation, that camaraderie, that 
kind of intellectual caliber around me um, that I will get in graduate school, but only for kind of for the sake of knowledge. And so I went so that I would have the time to think, because one of the things about working for Charlie Rose was that even though it was constantly fascinating and just really engaging, it was also constantly turned on. You know, there was no time for quiet contemplation. Right. No time. It was a 24-7 job. Yeah, t- TV production is not known yeah. for being, like, laid back. No, and, no. And, so, you know, spacious. we had live shows at 11. Yeah. I worked weekends. I always had to be on call. I traveled with him a lot, mm-hmm. where you're just literally on call 24-7. Right. And I was exhausted. I just, I wanted, and I missed writing. You know, it, it's something that that really feeds a very deep emotional yeah. need in me and when I don't do it even for a day I feel a little bit strange and empty and not very good about myself and so even though I was doing a lot of other really interesting stuff it was time time to go somewhere where contemplation and kind of deep thought was valued and that was that was academia and it was perfect timing I mean this was the fall of 2008 <laughs> So right. Um, right after I left, there were lots of cuts on the staff. <laughs> yeah, across the board in every form of media. That was an interesting time. And um, I ended up studying the crash as, as part of my dissertation. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Huh. So when you were at Columbia then, mm-hmm. you did, so you ended up with a PhD in psychology. Because mm-hmm. um, you tend to have a... a <laughs> I'm noticing a pattern of like psychology and this and (laughs) (laughs) well, I did get a master's in political science while I was there. Okay, just along the way too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm really interested in um, international relations and national security types of issues. Um, I did my senior thesis when I was an undergrad, actually in Georgia and the country. Mm. So I did some psych research with some of the leaders there. Yeah, which also ties back to, you know, in a related way where you came from. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. But no, I I studied self-control. So I I did specialize. But I had a phenomenal advisor who, you know, is now 84, 85, 85, I guess, and who was in his late 70s. I was his last grad student. And he just, he would sit and talk to me for hours and just share his wisdom. And he also paints and does mm. all these wonderful who things. Was it? Walter Michel. Wow. Um, so he, he did the marshmallow studies yeah, in yeah, the 60s. Yeah, of course, legendary. And he knew I didn't want to go into academia. He said, good for you. You know, it would kill your, it would kill your creativity. <laughs> and um, so he, he and I had a really wonderful rapport where I learned a lot, even though I was studying one very specific thing. Yeah. And he encouraged me to really read widely and, and deeply. Why self-regulation? Why not? <laughs> no, I am. Um, Can we also just, because the term is a little bit of a term of art. Can we sort of like broaden that as willpower? Is it, do you consider it the same thing or different? Sort of. Um, I think self-control is a little bit broader. Willpower is kind of your ability to kind of control your will, right? To mm. say no. Right. Um, you know, I'm not going to eat this marshmallow. In that particular study, yeah, that's the same thing um, because you have to kind of exert willpower. But to me, that willpower seems like brute force, like power of the will. Right. It's um, like me against the stimulus. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Self-control is a much broader thing about how do you regulate your emotions and how do you regulate yourself. And none of it, some of it might be sheer willpower. Some of it might be you're very good at you know, visualization and you are able to turn this marshmallow into a cloud mm. and pretend that it's a puffy cloud and you create a story about a puffy cloud or a sheep or something like that and you're not craving the marshmallow. Some of it about is about the ability to self-distract. So, you know, you see kids telling stories and dancing and fidgeting <laughs> and doing all sorts of cute things so that they don't it's eat. It's like anything not to touch the marshmallow. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so it's a much wider toolkit of just strategies to basically cool down your hot emotions whenever you feel like you must do something. How do you learn to deal with that? And yes, some of it is willpower, but a lot of it is just more of a psychological ability to understand 
the things that are hot buttons for you. Mm. So the marshmallow would not be one for me. I hate marshmallows. So I could you could put 50 in front of me and I wouldn't You'd be <laughs> I wouldn't need a single one. But you happen to have a bakery just down the street from where we're taping this right now mm-hmm. that if you put one of those cookies it's called uh Levan Bakery. Oh my god. If you put one of those cookies in front of me my self-control is going to go out the window. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> so <laughs> By the way, when it comes to that bakery, I'm 100% with you. <laughs> I'll, like, walk a block around it, so I just don't even smell it you know, going by. It's a um, terrible, terrible place. <laughs> yeah, evil in a good way. <laughs> um, what's interesting, too, is that you touch on this to a certain extent in your in your latest book, which I want to circle around to, but mm-hmm. not quite yet, but, but I think it, it bears sort of, like, talking about right now, because you actually bring up a study that I was familiar with, um, Baba Shiv, about, you know, it's... And it, this is why I'm keen on it. it's the difference between willpower and self-regulation. Is that mm-hmm. there are all sorts of other things that happen in your brain that you have no idea are happening that like profoundly alter your ability yeah. to say yes or no. Yes. Um, would you share what that that working memory seven numbers versus like two and what that did to? Yeah. So um, basically, the moral of the story <laughs> is right. that we have a lot of things that prevent us from really exercising our full mind when we're and our full logic and our full rational reasoning when we're making a decision. And the decision can be something like, do I eat a marshmallow? Do I eat a piece of cake? Or it can be something like, which car should I buy? You know, it can be, it really, or should I go out on a date with this person? Yeah. <laughs> it can really be anything. And one of the ways that we can really mimic this kind of usual state of being very kind of emotionally hot um, in a lab is through cognitive load. And cognitive load basically means we're going to give you stuff to think about so that you're busy and you don't have all of the resources that you need to fully engage in this decision. So I can say, I'm going to give you a two-digit number, so 27, and I need you to remember this number while you do all these other things. No problem, right? 27, pretty easy to remember. Now let me give you a three, four, five, six, seven digit number. All of a sudden, your decision-making ability just goes out the window. Mm. And you don't even notice things. And you, st- and you don't notice what you don't notice. You just completely lose the ability to think rationally. And most people say, yeah, but I'm not walking around trying to remember a seven-digit number. But it's probably much worse than but that. But it's probably reality, much yeah. worse. You know, you have so many other things going on, and you're thinking, you know, especially if you're stressed, right. if you're tired, I mean, if you didn't get a good night's sleep, there's so many things that can mimic that seven-digit number so that at the end of the day, you say, please give me the seven-digit number. <laughs> That's yeah, going to, it's to be much easier. And the ability, I mean, I, re- I remember in the research, you know, they were then offered, I think it was chocolate cake or a bowl of fruit. Yeah, and, and if <laughs> the ones with the seven-digit number would eat the cake. Right, so talk about because, an impact on self-regulation, Absolutely, too. <laughs> absolutely. And this has been really well replicated. You do see that when people have to exert themselves um, mentally, not physically, mind you, they start eating a lot of junk. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think we've all experienced that in some level. Yeah. You know, whether it's food or whether it just we we behave, you know, we do stuff that we know is not good for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you even, you know, I've had these moments, um, I don't know if you have, where I just say, you know, I know I should, I actually, t- I say, I know I should not eat this and I'm not even hungry mm-hmm. and I don't even want it that much. But you know what? I'm still going to do it, and oh, I'm, yeah. go, I'm going to eat it right now. And I eat it, and I have this dialogue with myself, and I studied self-control. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening is like, well, if she can't resist, we're all just completely busted. <laughs> you just uh, do not do not keep Levon Bakery cookies in the house. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just you have to tie your hands, right? Right, and if you do, make sure that everything that's like you're thinking about gets written down on a piece of paper before you walk. Yes, past it. so it's well, that's actually. Mind. That is such a good strategy and one that I often employ whenever mm. you just need to write things down. And for me, I actually have a planner, like one of those old-fashioned yeah. planners where I have a page for every single day. And I write down what I need to do because the physical act of putting it on that piece of paper yeah. f- makes it not floating in my mind. So in the back of my head, I don't have to remember, I have this deadline and this deadline and I also have to get milk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the exact same way. I mean, as long as I know 
it's on it's somewhere where I know I can go back to it. Mm-hmm. I'm able to kind of let it go and I just feel that you can like it's almost like you can literally feel the cognitive load lift. Yes. You absolutely. It's, it's a weird thing to say that, but I think at least that's my sensation of it. Absolutely. And for some reason when I put it into Google Calendar, it's not the same thing. Mm, I put that's so interesting. I put events into Google Calendar like this interview goes on Google Calendar. Right. But when I have to do something, like when I have a deadline, when I have to know that I have to write, you know, 3,500 words, mm. I actually need to write it down. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder what's happening in the brain if there's actually a difference in the lightening of the load, if you actually you know, physically write it versus just type it into something. Well, there's um, no research that I know of that addresses lightening of the load, but I have written about memory and writing, mm. and it ends up that writing things by hand enhances your memory mm. versus typing on the computer, that you maintain a much greater grasp of the material these were studies done with university students who either took notes by hand or on laptops. Yeah. And the ones who did it by hand not only had a be- better memory for kind of discrete facts, but had synthesized the material better. Somehow the themes emerged more. And the thinking goes that you can't write mostly as, as quickly as you can type. Right. Um, and so you actually have to think as you're writing. Yeah, that you, makes sense. You think through the material, and so you're already getting some of the gist out of it um, yeah. rather than just mindlessly writing down what people say. And I've noticed that because when I do interviews over the phone, I type because mm. I record always, but it's always better if you have notes as well. And I've had it happen when I... I'm just writing down what the person's saying, and then I go back and I say, "Oh, this is fascinating." I just <laughs> I didn't absorb it yeah. um, at all. It's funny. I recently had a I was talking to Sherry Turkle, who mm-hmm. you know, like what her last book was reclaiming conversation. But you know, she really became known before that. You know, for three decades of work around how people interact with technology. And, yeah. And she was saying something really similar. She said, "You know, a lot of times." She interviewed all of these students, and what she realized was that when they allowed computers into the classroom, students stopped taking notes and they started taking transcription. Mm -hmm. And their recall and their understanding of what was happening cratered. So a lot of the professors who started, you know, in the beginning, they're like, I'm not a neophyte, of course, it's just the next evolution. A couple years in are now saying, no, computers out of the classroom. And not just because they're on Facebook and being distracted, but because... They don't want the transcription thing happening. They want people to actually pay attention and then just, you know, like condense and, and digest and take real notes mm-hmm. so they have to process instead of just Absolutely. being machines. Absolutely. And that's the first um, objection that people have to this work. They say, oh, well, it's not that they're, that there's anything different. It's that they're on Facebook. But everyone, everyone controls for this when yeah. they do these types of studies and there's no internet available and it's not distraction it's actually the fact that you start being mindless yeah i mean it's amazing yeah. so you move from columbia and you start to really build an extraordinary writing career writing amazing pieces a lot of it around psychology and science for you know some of the biggest publications out there and then your first book mastermind was this astonishing sort of exploration of um, Holmes and Watson, and not not just their stories, but also like the actual mm-hmm. this, the mindset, and almost like the two different machines and psychologies <laughs> and how they interact. And that was, I mean, really fascinating conversation. And and that it seems like that almost became the launch pad for your latest book, The Confidence Game, because it seems like that. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it kind of seems like some of the questions that you started to raise there are questions that you really led to you exploring the dynamic of confidence and psychology and persuasion. I I think that there definitely is a natural evolution. The first book, well, obviously there's the superficial connection that I'm just fascinated with criminals, whether it's uh, (laughs) the people who are solving the crimes like Sherlock Holmes or the people committing them like con artists. But the first book on a deeper level was about mindfulness and kind of this what we get when we really, really pay attention. And by the end of it, so the the last chapter of the book explores um, how Conan Doyle just went off the deep end when it comes to spiritualism and how he believed these two little girls who created these fairies, the Cottingley fairies, and he believed them. And he wrote this big book, The Coming of the Fairies. And you think, oh my God, how could this science 
rational person, right. creator of Sherlock Holmes, how could he do this? And I was really drawn to some of the questions that that raised for me you know, about the nature of belief yeah. and how it can trump sometimes any rationality when we really need to believe. And I think that that's what I really started to explore in the confidence game. I think that was the germ, the germ of the, of the book was, was this deep, deep need and desire for meaning, for belief, for a world that makes sense, which prevents us, by the way, from thinking like Sherlock Holmes. It, it makes us fall for all of these things like Holmes's creator, Conan Doyle, ultimately did. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny how these things weave together. Also, And also, it's funny how this, your latest, also ties back to your short stint at Young and Rubenkamp as a copywriter. <laughs> because Indeed. there's... I mean, so this is re- is really interesting for me. So you know, we'll get into it a little bit, but the, you know, the the book is basically it's about the psychology of the long con, and yeah, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. Also, um, spent years studying persuasion, mm-hmm. um, copyright, and market. So as I'm reading this, and you're sort of laying out the stages of the con. On the one hand, I'm fascinated and I'm intrigued and I'm seeing so much of the research that I know and so much of the stuff validated. And, but I'm thinking to myself, I've seen it validated in a totally different yep. world. And yep. I'm, I'm like, I'm really conflicted because <laughs> I know everything that you're saying to be true, but I haven't experienced it. Actually, well, I haven't experienced it as the grifter in the use of a con. I have been conned. I've been conned on the street in New York. I've actually been conned twice on this show and had there are two episodes that we haven't aired and will never air. Wow. Because um, we found out shortly before that stories were told that weren't true. Um, Really? And I have to imagine, based on what you're saying. How did you find out? um, One of them, there were inklings of a story that started to break on social media, actually. Ah. And... There was enough to raise my eyebrow, so we were literally about to air like two days later, and we pulled it, and I just said, let me just see how this unfolds first. The next one was big in public. Um, so one broke really big in the media. Literally, like, both of them happened a day or two before we were wow. about to air the episode. Well, um, that's talk about good intuition on your part. So, see, you did absorb some of the, I some did. Of the I persuasion did. and some of those tactics. Yeah, but what's, what's so interesting to me is, is I've been on the other side of it. And I like to think, I've also been conned by a business partner. And I like to think, and this is where it gets really frustrating for so many people. I like to think I'm a a reasonably intelligent guy. I like to think that I'm reasonably good at sort of sussing out people. Yeah. You know, and so there was like this moment in diving deeper into your work where I'm hoping this is deliberate or maybe just came through where like you're kind of telling the reader, forgive yourself. Nobody is immune. Oh, absolutely. No, this was, it's definitely deliberate. And I think you have to forgive yourself because on one level or another, I think everyone will get conned at some point in their lives. And it won't always be this huge, you know, I've lost all my money. I've lost my life. I've lost a lot. It might be something relatively minor that there's... You buy a beauty product for $100. Is that a con? If it doesn't work and it doesn't do anything? I don't know. I mean, there's a thin line. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, um, I think ultimately, in terms of answering that question, um, I think it comes down to intention. It could be a con or not. If the person doing it really kind of was trying to do something good and was trying to develop good beauty products, making people feel good about themselves, kind of had good aims, honorable aims. And that's one thing. If it's someone who said, oh, ha, 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 this is basically snake oil. Yeah. Let me sell you some snake oil. Then that's a con. So I think that the exact same thing, depending on where it's coming from, could be the same snake oil. Yeah. <laughs> but one person legitimately believes Right, and which again is sort of, they're like layers of slippery slopes mm-hmm. here because, and it's funny I've had this conversation just around the idea of persuasion because when you really start to study the psychology of persuasion and you know you reference so much of the really powerful research and a, and a lot of the really early stuff you know is based on like Cialdini's seminal yeah. you know like six big things 
And He's great. I love Cialdini's Yeah, <laughs> and it's a, it's an it's amazing and but it yeah, it really is. It's like and it gets into when when I've started to absorb this stuff and I've taught this to people over the years and people start to come to me and they're like this is manipulation. I'm like, but is it what well, yes it is. I think there's no way, you know, like you're manipulating somebody or you're you're creating a scenario where you want to, to create a pathway to mm-hmm. a certain action that somebody yeah. takes. You know, but like you said, I think the difference between whether that's manipulation, whether it's a con, whether it's salvation, lies largely in the intention yeah. of the person who's sort of like wielding the techniques and the strategies. Yeah. The intention and the transparency. Yeah. So there's um, my fav- one of my favorite chapters to work on was the last chapter in the book, which um, deals with the work of David Sullivan, mm-hmm. who's a professional cult infiltrator who's just a fascinating human being. And I'm so sad I never got a chance to meet him because yeah. he died shortly before I started working on this book. But he was very big on the fact that there are even though he infiltrated cults and he was really anti all of these spiritual and religious gurus, that there was legitimate kind of religious movement out there too. And it was all in the transparency. You know, the, the legitimate ones didn't fool you into anything. They said, this is a, you know, yeah, this is a Buddhist temple. This is what we believe. You are free to come and go. You can, and he he experimented with Buddhism. Ultimately, he dis- discovered that a lot of it was actually also cultish and con-like. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he left it, but um, he was very open to that exploration. And I think that's a very important kind of distinction that yeah. a lot of that kind of nefariousness versus transparency of purpose. Yeah, but even there, though, I think it gets really great because. <laughs> And this is a really interesting thing. You talk about deprogramming or trying to get somebody out of a cult, yeah, yeah. right? You know, if you know how to wield all of these strategies and tools of persuasion, you know, and you have a family member who's fallen under the spell mm-hmm. of a cult, right? And you're pretty confident that if you actually lay this out the way that you know how to like, take them through right. your persuasion process, you'll be able to get them out. But if you if you're transparent about the fact that this is what you're doing, they'll run you from can't. you. can't. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's all shades of gray, yeah. right? It's, there's no black and white. And that's, I think, ultimately the, what we have to be comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with. It kind of goes to what you were saying earlier in our conversation, the kind of the lack of comfort we have in society with, with experimentation yeah. and with, with not having safety nets and kind of with basically letting safety go a little bit in a lot of the meanings of the word, not just physical safety, but just emotional safety, uh, monetary safety, just cert- certainty, that kind of, that, that, the safety that comes from certainty, that we really don't want to let it go. But we have to, because it's all gray. There's no black and white here. It's not like these are the bad guys. And yeah. These are the bad techniques, and these are the good guys. Right. These are the good techniques. And David Sullivan would always joke that he... If he had a second career, he could be a cult leader because he could he could create a premium right, because it's cult. fairly <laughs> like formulaic how to do it. You know, it's yeah. it's all the same tools, just wielded differently. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really and and as as somebody who you know wants to teach somebody you know other people how to help live a more engaged life or how to build you know businesses or practices or careers that really that are, are in service of themselves and others, you know, if some of these ideas, and you know, like, for, take an example, the first phase that you lay out in the con, I think you call it the put-up, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's not me, it's David Moore. Okay. So I, um, I, I want to give credit right. where, where credit's due. Mm-hmm. I, I borrowed his terms because I think his book, The Big Con, is yeah. just out of this world wonderful, and I encourage everyone to read it. Right, so you take that and immediately... So that's, you know, like everything that happens in that phase in the con, like when I look at, okay, entrepreneurship, (laughs) you know, it's like market segmentation, research, avatar identification, you know, like, (laughs) and it's like, and we just, we have fancy like names for them that make us sound like this is, this is academic research, you know, this is what you have to do before you start a, a, you know, a company so you can understand how to message them, how to serve, how to solve their problems. And it's, but it's the identical thing. 
know um, your mark. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's like whether it's a mark or a customer or a client or, you know, like a member. Uh-huh. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's really made me think. Um, and I've thought about this stuff a lot over a lot of years. This really took me back into that exploration yeah. because yeah. – like, you like to think that if you learn these things, you know, like, that if you're a good person and you're helping other people do good things, that it's okay. But you zoom the lens out, you know, and take the classic Buddhist you know, concept of emptiness. There's, whether it's good or bad is completely a matter of perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very uncomfortable to acknowledge it that. It is. <laughs> I, I, you know, I... After I finished this book, I really went through a phase of having lost all my faith in humanity mm. <laughs> and um, realizing, you know, just the world sucks and, every, and everyone <laughs> sucks <laughs> and everyone. You You're know, like, we're all doing this to each yeah, other all day, every we're day. All doing, yeah, exactly. We're all just evil, bad we're people. All, exactly. <laughs> we're all terrible human beings. And I'm slowly coming out of that. Because I, th- I think yeah, because it does go on all day, every day, and but I think also there's a certain amount of service in letting people in on the psychology and the sequence mm-hmm. and the process because then you can also kind of understand even if somebody's not being transparent about what's happening, you can start to recognize what's actually happening. Yeah, I hope so. That's... Yeah, but then the big question is even if you do, like you laid out a, a lot of the the marks and cons. Mm-hmm. The question for me was always, even if they knew exactly what was coming next, if it's done so artfully, yeah. you just might not care. Absolutely. Well, one of my favorite stories in this book is Oscar Hartzell, who's, mm. who sold the Drake fortune for millions and millions of dollars. So just a bit of a backstory, Francis Drake, the pirate, there's a tall tale that he left this huge treasure, basically, and that it's been caught up in red tape because his heir was Queen Elizabeth's son. Yeah, this mm. this this one gets gets kind of dirty, and none of this is true, by the way. Um, Francis Drake did not leave a fortune. He did have an heir who got everything, and it wasn't a lot of money. But Hartzell managed to convince so many people that this was true, and he was ingenious because he said, "You can't tell anyone because we'll cut you out of the fortune if you tell." And to the last day, even when the, he was already in jail and the police had already just told everything, people would still say, no, 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 I did not get conned. I will still mm-hmm. get my money. And these are people who hadn't seen a dime in returns. And they paid for his legal defense. His legal defenses were completely paid for by his victims. And this happens over and over and over, that you tell people exactly what has happened and yet, I think the best con artists are ourselves at the end of the day. We yeah. are so good at just crafting reality to be the way that we think it should be. Yeah, and, and I wonder sometimes we don't want to own it because if we do, it makes us question all of humanity. Absolutely. It makes us question ourselves yes. because all of a sudden we're like, and I think this is, to me, when you talk about the harm done with fraud and cons and stuff like that, well, you lost money, you lost business, you lost... To me, that's not the big harm. The big harm is the utter gutting of faith in your own ability to actually tell oh. what's real and right, and, and the complete loss of trust in everyone around you. Absolutely. I mean, it's devastating. And some of the things that didn't make, a lot of material did not make it into the book. There was a lot more than I could use. And I also had to make some deliberate choices about what kind of book it was going to be. And a lot of what didn't make it in were these really heartbreaking conversations with a lot of victims, some of whom, you know, would break down crying, others who told me stories of how they either contemplated suicide or actually tried to commit suicide after this happened because they just had completely lost the will to live because they'd just lost their faith in the world and the way the world should work and the fact that people are good and kind of these beliefs that had kept them going that had just all been and these were people who who ended up rebuilding their lives and so it's not like they you know it was either commit suicide or basically die right away because you have no money and nothing Mm. but that impulse is really strong. I didn't put that into the book because it would have become a very, very different yeah, book. No, totally. um, but it was something that really 
this was really a lot of fun to research, but it was also really sad. Yeah, I mean, really I, depressing. one of I, I mentioned that I had been conned on the street mm-hmm. years ago in New York City, and it was a really minor moment, but it affected me in a big way. I, and this was you know like decades ago. I was. You know, it was early one morning. I was rolling out of a friend's apartment. I was just walking down the street and, you know, nicely dressed, you know, like middle class couple comes walking up to me and tells me a story about how they were in the city from out of town. And, you know, they were out with friends and they left their wallet in the car and the car was towed to the lot on the other side of town. They just, is there any chance that I could loan them like $7? I literally remember the amount, right? right? You know, like 25 years later. So they could literally just grab a cab over. They gave me, like, all their information. They get it back to me as soon as possible. And all I had was a 20, so I gave him a 20. And and I got back to my place and, like, talked to my roommate. And he's like, you're such a sucker. And I'm like, no, 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 this was legit. Like, they were nice. They were yeah. cool. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And he's like, you're such a sucker. He's like, call the number. It's like, call the number. Of course it's fake. Of course. You know, everything is completely fake. But the damage done was not the 20 bucks. No. It was the fact that for probably a couple of years after that, Almost any time anybody walked up to me on the street wanting anything, yeah. I was like, I'm not going to be a sucker again. So I, I probably could have done a lot of good in the world, you yeah. know, even if yeah. it was just you know, like helping somebody or giving a dollar to someone. And I shut that off. Like I shut Absolutely. off the compassion. I shut off my ability to connect with people. Absolutely. And with good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, that's the ultimate harm. Yeah. And that's what, that's what the con does. Because it is based on belief. Yeah. And zooming the lens out again for me in the context of uh, being in business and marketing, it kind of reconnects, I think, anybody who's out there creating something where persuasion is part of the process. And that's everything Mm -hmm. that I think Mm -hmm. you have a responsibility. Absolutely. You know, to actually to do right by people. It's like Ogilvy's. What was his famous quote? It's like the customer is not a moron. The customer is your your mother or your wife or whatever it was. I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the quote. Yeah, you know, and, a, and that you have a responsibility to be ethical, or at least as ethical as you understand ethics to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So when the book comes out, how are you going to market it? <laughs> <laughs> the million-dollar question, right? Because right, that, that is a huge yeah, persuasive process. It is. It is. And I have to convince myself that I'm doing it for the good. Yeah. And I, I actually do. I don't need to convince myself. I think that it could be valuable. I, I think my I hope that people come away from this book being a little bit more knowledgeable about themselves mm. and a little bit better able, as you said, to forgive themselves so that. Ultimately, they don't lose faith in humanity, but they they learn how all of this works so that they can see it. They can prepare themselves. They won't fall for a kind of big scams. Maybe they will. Um, you know, it's this is no, there's no I think one of the one of the takeaway points is that there's really no way to make sure that it never happens, yeah. but that you also kind of understand why, and understanding why that you will not be silent, that you'll come forward if it does happen whereas most victims now don't, mm. um, to prevent these people from doing it again. And that you'll learn to realize that you need to believe in a certain wor- version of the world, and that's okay. That's totally fine. That is actually what makes us human. Yeah. Is that your greatest hope for the book? That is my greatest hope for the book. Mm. Love that. So the name of this is Good Life Project. If I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what comes up? What does it mean to you? I think to live a life that makes you happy and that makes you fulfilled in your own way, that doesn't try to live up to some abstract ideal of this is what it means to be a good person. Because I think that that can mean different things for different people. But where you learn enough about yourself and about who you are that you can really make yourself of the best possible person you can be. Because I think when you do that, other people around you become happy too. And if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're not motivated internally, if you're doing it because you're trying to check some boxes, like this is the good person checklist, then you end up being unhappy. And if you're unhappy, the people around you become miserable and it doesn't end up working anyway. And I think that self-knowledge, gaining that self-knowledge is among the toughest things that, that you can do, but I think among the most important. And it's 
I, I'm certainly not there. I think it's a lifelong quest, but I, I try to get closer. <laughs> yeah, I think the moment you acknowledge you're there is the moment you've lost. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Not you, but just all of us in general. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.